Hello and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Radetzky March by Joseph Roth. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. This episode of the Great Books Podcast is brought to you by the Thinking Fellows Podcast, and I'll have more to say about that in just a few minutes. Our guest is David Mickix, a professor of English at the University of Houston. His books include Slow Reading in a Hurried Age and Bellows People, How Saul Bellow Made Life into Art, plus his latest, Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker. He's also the editor of The Annotated Emerson, which is about Ralph Waldo Emerson, and a columnist for Tablet Magazine. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. David, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you, John. Very happy to be here to talk about this wonderful book uh, by Joseph Roth. Why is The Radetzky March by Joseph Roth a great book? It is, for one thing, an absolute page-turner, just unputdownable. If you love Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, it's a very Tolstoyan book, Roth really brings you into the lives of his characters. He uh, makes you embrace them, makes you think through every thought and feeling with them. It's a dynastic story. It's the story of a family in its decline. And that decline is also the decline of the Habsburg Empire. So it really is the classic novel about the uh, the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, the Kaiser himself, Franz Josef, plays a role in the book. We will talk about all of that. The character, the stories, the title of the book. What was Austria-Hungary? Why is it such a great setting for this family drama? And who was Joseph Roth, the novelist behind it all? Let's start with how the novel opens. We are at the Battle of Solferino, it's 1859, as Austrians fight to keep their Italian territory, the emperor arrives on the scene, holds up a field glass, a pair of binoculars, to take a look at what's happening at the battle. Turns out that's a big mistake. Why and what happens? How does this novel get going? It is a big mistake because the enemy, who is in retreat, has turned around and has its uh, sights on the Kaiser. Anyone uh, with a field glass is an open target. You can see that from a great distance. And so a shot rings out aimed directly at Kaiser Franz Josef, who is at that time a young man. This, by the way, was the last battle in world history where the heads of state actually played a role on the battlefield. So you also had Victor Emmanuel of uh, the Piedmont Army, the Italian Army, and you also had Napoleon III of France, as well as uh, Franz Josef. And so they're all on the scene. This is a real battle from history, 1859, and Joseph Roth is, is fictionalizing it. He is, he is. So he has a character on the scene, a man named uh, Trotta, who is a Slovenian, but who is a loyal servant of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he sees that the Kaiser is in danger, and he leaps up and pushes him to the ground. So the shot that was intended for the Kaiser, for the emperor, actually hits Lieutenant Trotta. And he is rewarded with a knighthood. He becomes Fon Trotta. He's like a Secret Service agent who takes a bullet for the president. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the bullet hits his left shoulder. He is, he is wounded, and he becomes a great hero and is received by the Kaiser. Uh, the story is told in uh, textbooks for students. 
and so on and so forth. And he is the grandfather, he is the founder of this family that we read about in the Radetzky March. Now, he is in a lot of ways just an ordinary guy. He's a, he's a lieutenant in the infantry, but he's not a member of the aristocracy. Exactly, exactly. He's knighted by the Kaiser. And uh, his son, who becomes a district captain, is another loyal servant of the, uh, of the Kaiser or the emperor. Service is a very important ideal in the novel. Loyalty to the empire and to its leader, the Kaiser, who really holds everything together. And so the book opens with this dramatic battle scene, this event of, of heroism, and it's the most important event in the whole book. Everything else flows from it, connects back to it, and there's a lot of important stuff to come, but this is really the key thing, isn't it? It is, it is, John. And uh, the grandson in the book, who becomes the main character, is uh, often being told that you are the grandson of the hero of Solferino. That is, uh, he's being challenged to live up to this heritage. And there's a portrait of his grandfather, which is referred to again and again throughout the book. So Carl Yosef, the grandson of the hero of the battle, he becomes our main character. But let's get to him in a few moments. The lieutenant, the first Yosef Trata, this infantry lieutenant who saves the life of the emperor. Uh, tell us a little bit more about him. What, what makes him significant about his background and, and, and what happens to him? Well, he, uh, for one thing, as I said, he's Slovenian. He speaks Slovenian to his son, although his son, the father of our main character, you know, is losing his command of the language. Of course, uh, mostly speaks German. But Slovenia is part of the empire, and this is something to note about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a sort of patchwork of various nationalities, all of whom are held together in this you know, vast region through, um, through loyalty to the Habsburgs, through loyalty to the uh, aristocratic line. And there's a particular sort of style, there's a particular sort of way of, of uh, handling oneself, there's a kind of stiffness and dignity that's expected of the, uh, the officers of the empire. So that, that comes up over and over again in the book. There's a, a funny description, which I'd like to quote to you, of this is actually about the son, not, not the character you're mentioning, the grandfather. So the, the, the son of uh, the lieutenant, the hero of the Solferino, would, uh, you know, of course, they would have three-course meals, and Roth writes the following. Between the second and third course, he would usually get up in order to stretch my legs, he says. But it seemed more as if he wanted to show the rest of the household how to rise, stand, and walk without relinquishing immobility. So, you know, that, that sort of stiffness and dignity, you're all familiar probably with the, uh, the characteristic outfits that they wore, those, the, those trousers, which seemed to... Um, you know, it, g it gave you a kind of springy step. And, uh, you know, the waxed mustaches, the upturned collars, the walking sticks, all of the kind of uh, apparatus of, a, uh, of an officer of the empire. The Radetzky March was published in 1932. So this is history that Joseph Roth is looking back upon. Not ancient history, not recent history either. It's from the previous century. Emperor Franz Josef I was a real figure. 
born 1830, died 1916, part of the Habsburg Empire. Just remind us, who, who were the Habsburgs and why were they so important in Europe in the 19th century into the 20th century? Yes, yes. Well, they were uh, one of the longest reigning royal families and previously had reigned over Spain, in fact, as well as Austria. And at this point, what's what's important about Franz Josef is if up to his death in 1916, when he was a very old man, as you've noted, John, uh, was the longest reigning monarch in Europe. And uh, Roth portrays him with great tenderness. He had great affection and respect for the Kaiser. But he also points out that at the end, Franz Josef is losing his memory. And so this is a very poignant part of the novel. Uh, one of the other characters in the book, a fellow named the Count uh, Choynitsky, says, when the Kaiser shuts his eyes and goes to sleep, the whole empire will, will fall into a hundred pieces. And in fact, this turned out to be the case that, uh, you know, the Kaiser's death uh, coincides almost exactly with the, uh, the disappearance of the Habsburg Empire. Of course, World War I has already begun when the Kaiser dies, and that really is the death knell for the empire. This is a great problem for the empire of Austria-Hungary. As you mentioned, it's this gigantic, multi-ethnic conglomeration of different kinds of people speaking different kinds of language, and he's the one thing holding them together. It's an amazing feat of statesmanship on the one hand, although it does seem doomed to fail. It is. It is doomed to fail. And nationalism is rearing its head. Nationalism, of course, is the major, the major force of the 20th century. You know, Roth was a Jew. He comes from uh, Galicia at the furthest corner of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Jews get left out of this uh, upsurge of nationalism. They become the targets of, uh, of many of the national movements. He has a peculiar perspective on this. But, but yes, the, the, the empire will be torn apart. And again, you see this in Tolstoy as well as in, as well as in Roth, the, uh, you know, the tinderbox of the Balkans, it was called. World War I is begun by the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. One of the ways you keep the Austria-Hungarian Empire together is through the books, what the books say about the country and its history, and particularly the school books and what they report to the children of this empire about the history of, of this country. And this becomes an important plot point in the Radetzky March. What happens in the history books? Why is it controversial? And how does it keep our story going? Very near the beginning of the book, the, uh, the hero of Solferino, the grandfather, runs across a passage that his son is reading in school. And the passage says that the Kaiser was saved by him, by the grandfather, but it changes the details so that the, the grandfather actually is, is hit by a sword, is, is wounded by a sword. And then the passage goes on to say that the Kaiser himself was, was bearing a sword and he sort of swung back and forth at his enemies. So the, the grandfather goes to see the Kaiser. He's very upset at this, and he demands that the history books be changed. And so this is an index of the kind of the fact that even though the Kaiser is, Roth puts it this way, the Kaiser was infinitely remote yet very close. You know, he was a constant presence. His portrait was everywhere. And the grandfather of the family actually gets to see the Kaiser, 
who makes this change in the textbooks. Now, that incident is echoed much later in the novel when our main character, the grandson, has become an alcoholic, has run up gambling debts, and uh, his father, the father, uh, you know, the, the middle generation, the district captain, as he's called, goes to see the Kaiser to get his son out of debts. And at that point, the Kaiser can barely remember meeting the grandfather, barely remember who the grandfather was, but he agrees to do this favor for the family because the family he dimly remembers is so important to his history. And it does raise the question of, of what is the purpose of history? Is it, is it to, to learn the truth about the past or should it serve a different purpose? Maybe even a patriotic purpose, which can be a good purpose, but isn't necessarily a truthful purpose. Yes, yes, that, that's true. And as the novel goes on, we're increasingly presented with uh, the failings of the Kaiser. He's become quite feeble, and, uh, but yet he is a kind of uh, encouraging presence to everybody. He's necessary to, to the empire. And so uh, we have this sort of prophecy of doom given by one of the characters. You know, he foresees the rise of nationalism, the world being torn apart, you know, not to give away plot points, but uh, World War I really ends the novel. Everyone is aware that an enormous change has happened. Roth himself had a great nostalgia for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He considered himself a loyalist of the Habsburgs, uh, first and foremost. And in fact, you know, very poignantly, in 1938, after the Nazis had taken over Austria, after the Anschluss, uh, Roth was seeing that the heir, the displaced heir of the Habsburg Empire in Paris, trying to figure out some way for him to become the head of state of Austria. And of course, this was utterly impossible, you know, utterly futile. But Roth still you know, cherished this hope that somehow the Habsburgs might return to power. You're listening to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review, and I'd like to tell you about our sponsor today, The Thinking Fellows Podcast. This year is the 100th anniversary of the highly influential book by J. Gresham Mackin called Christianity and Liberalism. This important book explores the relationship and conflict between classical Christian thought and liberal ideology, and this week, The Thinking Fellows Podcast, part of the 1517 Podcast Network, discusses this classic work. As part of a two-episode series, The Thinking Fellows will explore why Mackin's work remains relevant 100 years later and how these ideas affect our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to essential ideas in philosophy, history, and Christian theology. Whether you're a student of theology, philosophy, or history, or simply someone who loves great literature, you won't want to miss these episodes of the Thinking Fellows podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts for an engaging and enlightening discussion every week. David, let's move on now to the main character, Carl Yosef, the grandson of the hero of the Battle of Sol Farino. We've alluded to it, we've mentioned him briefly a couple of times, but tell us, who is Carl Yosef? How does he come to dominate this book? Yes, well, Carl Yosef, the, the grandson of the hero of Sol Farino, is uh, in many ways a reflection of Roth himself. Carl Yosef becomes an alcoholic, 
Roth was a very heavy drinker, and uh, really his life was ended by alcohol. He somehow, Roth, that is, uh, managed to keep writing incessantly. He would write at cafes while drinking schnapps and uh, also carry on conversations. He wrote his 17 novels this way. So really unusual career, needless to say. But Carl Yosef uh, reflects Roth's own experience. He, uh, we see in him the unfolding of uh, a young man. First of all, we have his initiation into romance, into romantic love. He uh, has an affair with a married woman. And this is something that, uh, that Roth picks up from uh, Flaubert's sentimental education. This is sort of the characteristic initiation of the, uh, the hero of a French novel to have an affair with a, uh, an older woman who is married. And uh, then she dies. The woman dies. Uh, Frau Slama is her name. And Carl Josef is, is uh, shattered by this. And in a very poignant scene, the husband of the dead woman gives him the letters, gives him the letters that, they, that had passed between them. So the husband knows that, that, that there had been an affair. It's a wonderful chapter of the novel. And in fact, Roth wrote that chapter of the novel. Uh, he left it in a taxi cab because he was drunk. He lost it and he rewrote it. It's one of the greatest chapters of the book. So that's the beginning of Carl Yosef's career. And then we go on to a very interesting episode, his friendship with, uh, with a Jewish officer named uh, Max DeMont, who's a doctor, who's a military doctor, who is insulted by another officer. Max DeMont, the Jewish officer who's the friend of Carl Yosef, is drawn into a duel, really against his will, but it's inevitable. And he knows he's going to die. There's uh, sort of excruciating and also wonderfully detailed section of the novel in which Max is thinking, I have just six hours left to live. It's, it's certain that this fellow is going to shoot me. And in fact, I'm not even going to take aim at him. This sense of doom, this sense of uh, it's a useless death. He says to Carl Yosef at one point, our grandfathers left us little strength, just enough strength left for a senseless death. So that kind of episode, very poignant episode of the anticipation of the duel and then the duel itself, that really uh, follows in the tradition of Chekhov and Tolstoy. You have very similar scenes there. And it's just as gripping. You know, Roth is, again, just a real page turner. He really, uh, he really um, carries you through all the emotions uh, in, in this event. So you have Carl Yosef cherishing the, uh, the memory of his friend Max uh, for the rest of the book. You've mentioned Tolstoy a couple of times. This book, The Radetzky March, was published in 1932 when, when modernism is really, I don't know, at its peak, certainly taking hold. Everybody is writing modernist novels. They're, they're painting modernist artworks. Uh, this, is, this is the chief aesthetic movement in the West. And this is, this is a kind of throwback, though. It's, it's, I don't know, is it a rejection of that? It's certainly an old-fashioned sort of novel in a different age. Yes, John, it's a very old-fashioned novel in, uh, in, a, in the best way. And obviously, it had in the previous decade some of the great monuments of modernist literature, like Joyce's Ulysses, for example, Virginia Woolf's novels. Roth really turns his back on these. He doesn't make a big point of his rejection of modernism, but he clearly follows in the realist tradition of Stendhal, 
of Tolstoy, of Flaubert. Uh, that's where he's at. He gives himself to the life of these characters the way that those great realist authors do. The title, The Radetzky March, where is that from? The Radetzky March is the unofficial anthem of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in particular, it's played at military parades, at uh, assembly of troops. Its title comes from the field marshal Radetzky von Raditz, who was the hero of a great battle that took place in 1848. Whenever you hear that music, that music which was known through the whole span of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, everyone had heard this tune, and everyone immediately thought of the Kaiser and of the military glory of the empire. The novel was written in German. If you want to read it in English, I know there are several translations. Is there one that you recommend? Is there a best edition of the Radetzky March? Yes, there is. There's a, a wonderful translator named Michael Hoffman. Uh, Michael Hoffman. He has uh, translated many novels by Joseph Roth. And there are other novels, of course, by him that I can recommend. As I said, there are 17 of them. The Radetzky March, though, is his masterpiece. And that's the one I would certainly encourage people to start with. And yeah, so Hoffman's translation is the one to get. I want to talk about Roth in a moment, but let's let's finish up the story of the novel, The Radetzky March. We have the third Baron Trata, Carl Josef, the grandson of, of that first character. He's the major figure in the book. He leads a life of dissipation, uh, drinking, gets involved in dueling, all that kind of stuff. Tell us how he meets his end, because it, it reflects the beginning of the book in certain ways. Yes, it does. He, he meets his end on the battlefields of World War I, and this is not unexpected. You had a similar conclusion in, for example, The Magic Mountain of, uh, of Thomas Mann, which is a, a novel from the previous decade and also a throwback to the, to the great realists of the 19th century. So I, I don't want to give away the details of this, but yes, it is, it is a senseless death. Well, just to give away one detail at least, he reflects the Kaiser, that is, uh, Karl Josef. He pokes his head out of uh, a trench and he becomes visible just as the Kaiser was in the first scene of the book, but there is no one to save him. And so it's a kind of mirror image of the opening of the novel, kind of a reverse portrait of the act of heroism that his grandfather uh, is involved with as, as the novel opens. And what does, that, what does that say? You know, here we have a, a book that begins with, with this, this great act, and then it's just, is it just a story of decline as a family falls apart across three generations and finishes in this bleak way? It is a story of decline, but it's also a story of memory. It's also a tale of nostalgia, and it's a tribute to the past. And I want to read just a couple of lines where Roth sums this up. Roth says, in remembering the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he says, that was how things were back then. Anything that grew took its time growing, and anything that perished took a long time to be forgotten. People lived on memories just as they now live on the ability to forget quickly and emphatically. So Roth was a man of memories. He was lodged in the past. And this book is his tribute to the vanished empire, which he still remembered so well in all its details. And in that sense, it's a conservative book, one that cherishes the past 
even as it records the decline of heroism. Joseph Roth was born in 1894, died in 1939. He was a Jewish writer, as you mentioned. To what extent is this a Jewish story? Is it a Jewish story, the Radetzky March? It's an interesting question. Roth described himself at times as a Jewish Catholic. However, he was not baptized. He was never baptized, but he he grew interested in Catholicism as time went by. But he certainly identified as a Jew. He had no other choice, really. Uh, from time to time, he was made favorable remarks about Zionism. He really um, saw himself as a Jew within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, there was a place for Jews in the empire. And, uh, you know, to this day, I think, there is a a memory of the Kaiser Franz Josef as, as having been something of a friend to the Jews. That is an important factor. Um, also, when Roth came from his small town of Brody in Galicia, which is near the Russian border, when he came to Vienna, he came to a place that was uh, very significantly Jewish uh, in the faculties of law and medicine at the university, and also, more importantly for Roth, in the cafe society. You know, many of the uh, literary figures in Vienna at that time were Jews. And so that was the aspect of the empire that, uh, that uh, Roth was particularly attached to. He wrote a bunch of novels, as you mentioned, and in 1923, he wrote a novel that mentions Adolf Hitler. And I saw this was the first novel, apparently, to mention Adolf Hitler. He sounded an alarm early about Hitler and the Nazis. That is true. That, that's quite true. And I mean, that's extraordinary that he mentions Hitler in that novel when Hitler was a relatively obscure figure in 1923. If you read his later work, he eventually moved to Paris. I mean, he thought of Paris as a, as a paradise. And in fact, Michael Hoffman's edition of Roth's newspaper essays, Roth wrote many hundreds of uh, little essays for uh, the Frankfurter Zeitung, for a German newspaper, and his dispatches from Paris were called, in Michael Hoffman's edition, they're called Notes from a Parisian Paradise. So he's um, often reflecting on like, sort of the air of freedom and style and high fashion that he loves in Paris and contrasting it to um, what he's thought of as the sort of dour German culture that he had escaped because he had been in Berlin for, for, uh, for years before that. So, you know, he certainly saw uh, Nazism coming, but he really underestimated its power. This is really a crushing incident to remember, but very near his death, just a few days before his death in 1939 in May, Roth was told about the suicide in New York City of another German Jewish writer, uh, Ernst Toller, he said, Roth said, well, uh, he made a mistake because the Nazis will be gone. You know, they won't last. Uh, but then a few days later, Roth was in a hospital. He had had a seizure. He had delirium tremens and they had to tie him to the bed. He, um, he was in very bad shape at that point. And so I think he realized that this was no passing phenomenon, even, even while he, along with Many others of his cohort were, you know, sort of predicting that, well, this too will 
pass. And then he died in 1939, and a few months later, World War II begins. My, my general impression of Joseph Roth is that he was very popular, especially with the Radetzky March in his lifetime, and then maybe fell out of favor critically for a while. And then now he's coming back a little bit. Is that your sense as well? And, and why would he be coming back now? He is coming back, yes. He was very popular in his lifetime, particularly with a, a small book, which I also re, uh, recommend highly. It's a novella called Job. It's not about the biblical Job. It's about an Eastern European Jewish fellow. It's a, about an Eastern European rabbi. And uh, it, uh, Job, this novella, was in fact Marlena Dietrich's favorite book. It was a very popular book in its time. So, because of that, and also because of the Radetzky March and other novels, he was quite popular. But then he did fall out of favor, I think, until, until rather recently. As I mentioned, uh, there have been some collections of his essays. There's a collection of uh, essays he wrote about Berlin, a collection of essays about Paris. I think in large part due to the, due to the efforts of the translator, Michael Hoffmann, he is uh, he's coming back into into favor, into popularity. How did you discover Joseph Roth and, in particular, the Radetzky March? That's a good question. It, it was on my list. Many of us have these lists of books that we want to get around to sooner or later. And the Radetzky March was one of those. I had been told that it's the great novel of the Habsburg Empire and that I had to read it. And so eventually I did. And as I, as I mentioned, John, it just knocked me out. You know, you cannot put the book down. It really is. And I also, I think, mentioned that I'm a great lover of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. It really is, uh, you know, a worthy successor to that book, I think. I've been told by various people that I should read it. So eventually I did. And then I read the, uh, the biography, uh, which as of yet is only in, uh, in German. Uh, by a fellow named David Bronson of Roth. I, I wrote a, a piece for Tablet Magazine in which, in which I uh, tell a lot of the details of Roth's life, which is both a tragic life. For example, his first wife went mad and was institutionalized. His life had many ups and downs, but was also very entertaining. He was a, a real fabulist. He told, told various tales about himself. For example, he said that his father was a Viennese munitions manufacturer, or at other times that his father had been, you know, an Austrian officer. Uh, both of these things were untrue. Roth said at one point that uh, in the cafes of Vienna, he had learned to fictionalize himself. He had learned to tell tales about himself. He said, I learned the real craft of the writer and the confidence man, how to formulate things. So he was, uh, he was quite an interesting character. And his life is, uh, is uh, a fascinating one, I think. Your column in Tablet Magazine is what persuaded me to do a show on the Radetzky March. I have a friend who's a great advocate of this novel, is always saying, you've got to read the Radetzky March. And then I read your column, and I thought, I, I, I want to do a show on it, and I want, I want, I want David Mickix as my guest, in fact. But very quickly, tell us, what is Tablet Magazine, and how can our listeners learn more about it? Yes, Tablet Magazine, for which I write a monthly column, is a, a wonderful uh, magazine. It's not unlike National Review in some ways. And it covers culture, it covers politics, it covers Jewish life. I would describe it as, uh, as iconoclastic. 
it's sort of in a Substack vein as well. So that if you enjoy Substack, if you enjoy National Review, I think you would also like uh, Tablet. And it's available at tabletmag.com. So click on it. It's free. One more question, David. What is the case for reading the Radetzky March now, nearly a century after its first publication? I think that the Radetzky March really gives us a window into a past that is very significant for us. It's, it's a portrait of a time-honored order of things, a past in which people valued tradition, even as they saw that tradition was in decline, but it was still worth cherishing. It was still worth remembering. And it's a story of loneliness, of dissolution, but it's also a story of family bonds and of the bonds between father and son. So it, it is something that gives us a, a real sense of the past. And uh, it's a past that I think still speaks to us, even as our lives have become rather different. David Mickix, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the Radetzky March by Joseph Roth. Thank you so much, John. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.